want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids this morning. Uh, if you are in the, the blue station, you're going to be learning uh, the, the story of Paul. The story of Paul. If you're in the gray station, you're going to be learning uh, about the, the answer to this question, what is prayer? And uh, I'll go ahead and offer that for you this morning. Prayer is pouring out our hearts to God. We just did that. The kids are going to be learning and practicing that this morning. Wanna, uh, just in, in light of this question, what is prayer? I just want to encourage you that when we gather, I, I tell you this regularly, but I'm not a professional prayer, and many of you are thinking in your minds because you're kind and you're not saying it out loud, amen. And uh, I would agree with that as well. I'm not a professional prayer, but what God has called us to do is to pray together. And so when I do pray, when somebody is praying, I'm going to encourage you to lean in and pray. And one of the ways that we do that at, at Hagerstown Church is by, by answering questions like, what has God promised us and what are we expecting him to, to fulfill? What promise? And uh, we declare that to him in, in, in prayer uh, t- together. And so uh, make sure that you're asking uh, some of these kids around as you see them this question, what is prayer for the, for the desire to stump them or to inc- spur them along in their edification and discipleship? Transitioning to our time in the text this morning, I want to remind you of the story of Jacob and Laban. The story of Jacob and Laban. It's a story of patient waiting. And it's a story of intentional deception. Jacob was Laban's nephew. Jacob really liked a member of Laban's family, particularly Rachel, and thought that he would like to marry her. And Laban and Jacob had worked out a deal that if Jacob would work seven years, sort of as a dowry, Jacob didn't have anything to his name, but if he'd work seven years, that he would earn the right to marry Rachel. And so Jacob spent seven years there working for the name in honor of his uncle Laban. What happened at the end of that seven years of patience and waiting and hard work? Well, the trick was revealed. The trap was sprung. And Jacob woke up having realized that he had not married Rachel, but he had indeed married her sister Leah or Leah. What would you do at that particular point in your life? If this is how your life had played out, the last seven years evaporated, gone in a way that you hadn't intended, and the offer was to work seven more years because according to this custom that was conveniently left out, he would have to work seven more to actually get Rachel for a total of 14. What would you do? Would you commit to that second stint? That's what our friend Jacob did. But would you, when it comes to promises that we make to one another or that have been made to us, we often are found considering the character of the one making the promise. I imagine if that were me, if I were in Jacob's shoes, if I came to the end of that first seven years, I would think it's not worth another seven. Why? Because the character of this man was not good. It wasn't trustworthy. And so we consider when we come to promises the character of the one that's making the promise. We also consider the content of the promise. 
What exactly is being promised to us? Is it possible this thing that's being made, uh, declared that will come to pass? Is it possible? Furthermore, is it even something that we desire? When that promise is made, we ask that question of the content of the promise. And finally, maybe we consider the circumstances of the promise. How much will this actually cost us? How long will it take? These sorts of questions and considerations are really the subject of our sermon and our text this morning there in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. So I want to invite you to turn there, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. I invite you to grab the copy that's in front of you, the black hardback Bible. I grabbed one today as I was making my way up here, and I opened it up, and it was interesting. There, It fell open to one place, Hebrews chapter 6. I imagine that uh, these new Bibles, which I'm so grateful that we're able to use, have really only been uh, used there in Hebrews, and so it just naturally opens up. We'll only be able to say that for a, a few more sermon series, but they're on page 1190, spilling over to 1191. What does the Word of God say? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word in our ears. Father, we've obeyed you. We've read your scriptures. You've demanded for our good and for your glory that we do this. And so we have, you've promised us that you'll bless it. In our hearing, you promised that you would encourage us with it, that you'd correct us. And that as Jesus has lifted us, that lifted up, that you draw us in near. And so we claim that now. We know that you'll do it by the power of the Holy Spirit as his word is preached. We ask this, Jesus, in faith, in your name, he who is the anchor of our souls. Amen. If you've ever taken a detour, you know that uh, it can be sometimes difficult to get back on the right track. It's easy to get lost. It's easy to get distracted. But not for this author. You'll remember a few weeks ago, I made the case, I pointed out that he had a logical flow. He had a place that he is going towards. He's racing, barreling ahead towards. He wants us to understand some things about Jesus. And he's introduced this idea that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And after introducing Melchizedek, he realizes that he's already got a group of people that have eyes glazed over. And so there at the end of chapter five, he says, hey, 
Some of you are drinking milk. You're stuck on that, and you've not moved on to solid food. And so he, he wants to correct them. He wants to challenge them. And so he sorts of, sort of presses pause on this logical flow, this argument that he's making for Christ and how he is after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on to talk about apostasy and the connection really between those who have lost the taste for solid food and those who have become apostates, who have turned away from Christ altogether. Those who, at least humanly speaking, visibly can't be added back to that repentance that it seemed as though they had. He's made his point now. And as we saw last week, he's taken all the air out of our lungs, kind of knocked us back, we're concerned, and he says, but I'm, I'm not sure about this being true of you. And matter of fact, I, I do think that this is not true of you, that you are not apostates, and that you are solid, uh, at least you have a taste for solid food, and that you'll continue to, to peruse and enjoy that. So once he's accomplished that, he's encouraged them, how is he going to get back on the road well, I told you a few weeks ago, he is an incredible, he's a very gifted orator. And as you consider just the, the literary value of verses 13 to the end of this chapter, to verse 20, I think you'll be impressed. But the point is not that we be impressed. The point is that the author used these few verses to get back on track, back to talking about Melchizedek. And hopefully, we will be the better for his detour. In the text this morning, he uses the promise that God made to Abraham to illustrate a little bit about the promise that God made to the church, to us. So we'll take some time here in a bit to talk about God's promise to the church. But before we do that, I want us to look at God's promise to Abraham because that's where our verses begin today. And so the character, I'm sorry, God's promise to Abraham, I have three points we'll look at, three sections under this, uh, this promise of God to Abraham. The first is the character of the promiser. This is the content. This is what he wants us to understand. He wants us to know a little bit about the character of God who has made a promise in the past to Father Abraham. We see that like Laban to Jacob, God is a promise maker, but they are quite different. The character of Laban was lacking, and the character of God Almighty, we'll see, is upstanding and worthy of our trust. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, potentially on your screen, if you want to turn back to the very beginning of the, the Bible there, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Word of God says this, God comes to Abraham and says, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God Almighty appears to Abram there in Haran. He says, leave your dad's house. Leave the land that you know. I'm making a promise to you. I'll give you your own land. I'll give you a nation, a family that's so great that everyone who 
blesses you will be blessed by you, and everyone who curses you or dishonors you will be cursed or dishonored by me. Furthermore, everybody in the entire world, all the families, all the nations, all the tribes of the world will be blessed through you. This is the promise that comes to Abram. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 18. We see God coming back, speaking to Abram, now Abraham. And he says to him in verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There in chapter 12, we see God's first promise made to Abram. And then again, we see time has gone on, and in verse, chapter 22, verse 15 and following, we see that God doesn't just make a promise. He doesn't just make a statement, but he ups it a little bit, and he swears. He makes an oath. Now, he doesn't swear as in when uh, granddad hits his thumb with a hammer and lets out a word that mom wouldn't approve of, but he makes an oath. He swears. It's customary in this day and age to, to swear an oath. To say, and so to speak, if I'm lying, may God Almighty strike me dead, or may the house of Dagon and all of its curses be upon me. An equivalent in our day and age might be something like this God is my witness. May God strike me dead if I'm lying to you. In a sense, this is what God has done in Genesis chapter 22. In chapter 12, he makes a promise. In chapter 20, or 20, yeah, 12, he makes the promise. In 22, he swears an oath. It's custom to swear an oath, but to swear not by yourself, but by somebody higher than you. You'll notice, God is my witness. May God strike me dead. What are you, what are you doing if you make a statement like that, if you make an oath? Well, you're appealing to God. You're saying, God knows my heart. God knows what's true. And may I be struck dead by the one who is higher than I if I am found out to be lying. This could be said of a king. This could be said of a ruler. This could be said of even a family member or a patriarch in your family. Swearing by somebody who is more powerful and higher than you. God makes an oath. There's nobody higher than God, and so he swears by his own name. Makes an oath. Jesus had warned about taking oaths, making oaths. Maybe you're thinking of that right now. A few years ago, many of us memorized the Sermon on the Mount, and in that great sermon, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ warns his disciples that we are not to use oaths for certain purposes. Jesus did warn about that, but what was he warning against? Well, he was warning about using oaths as a way of compensating for a lack of integrity. You're not a very honest person, maybe, and so you anticipate that the person that you're speaking with may not really believe what you're saying. And so instead of just letting your yay be yay and your nay be nay, you are compelled by their lack of trust in you based on your prior failures to be honest and truthful, you're compelled then to make an oath. May God strike me dead this time. I won't lie again. That's what Jesus is warning about. 
And so maybe you're asking, why then did God make an oath? Has God ever demonstrated himself to not be trustworthy? What is his character like? If God would make an oath and Jesus, the son of God, second person in the Trinity would tell his disciples to not make those oaths, why did Jesus do that? Well, one commentator was wildly helpful to me. I think he'll be for you as well. He says this, rather than needing oaths, To shore up the veracity of his words, God uses oaths to provide assurance and encouragement to his people. In other words, the reason for God's oaths found in the scriptures is not because of his need, but because of ours. You see, God doesn't come to us making an oath. He hasn't come to Abraham making an oath saying, I promise I won't lie this time. He's not trying to help us to see that he is not a liar or that he he won't lie in the future, but that he has never lied in the past. This is a kindness that he would come to us and he would reassure. What is the character of the one making the promise to Abraham? It is one of assurance. What is God like? He is someone that reassures. How kind of it is of God to remind Abram or Abraham, and even to reassure him of his earlier promise by giving an oath to him. You see, the weakness wasn't in God's character, but the weakness was maybe in Abram's faith. Maybe that's true for you as well. Parents, I consider the the way that God treats his children. It's a sobering thing, and frankly, it's embarrassing. When his children need assurance, he doesn't say, I already said something. What did I say? I'll not repeat myself. I'm not on trial here. You are. God never takes that posture with his children. In the moment that Abram needs assurance, in the moment that Abram needs to be reminded of God's covenant faithfulness and love for him, that Abram did not deserve or even earn, God makes an oath. It's a form of condescension, but not in the bad way. It's a form of incarnation in a sense that he would lower down to our level where we are and say, I know you're struggling, Abram, and I'm gonna make this promise again, and I'm going to swear by my own name. There's nothing higher than me. There's no name greater than mine. I'll swear by it. And in that way, he is revealing himself, his character to be that of reassuring. We have a great deal to learn as we consider the way that God communicates and interacts in regard uh, to his people in regard to the promises that he's made. The character of the one who has made the promise, he's a reassuring creature or or a, a being. But not only is he reassuring, but we also see that he's trustworthy not just in this text alone or in the story of God's interaction with Abram or Abraham, but we also see very explicitly stated in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, where the scriptures say this, God is not man. That should get an amen. God is not man that he should not lie or that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind I'm not lying, I just changed my mind, right? 
That's what men do. Speaking of God, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? This verse filled with rhetorical questions helps to establish something that you already know in your heart of hearts. That when God makes a promise, he keeps it. That God cannot lie. He never has and he never will. You say, this is a simple truth. I thought that the kids had been dismissed. It is a simple truth and it's one that we so often forget. That when God makes a promise, we can take that to the bank. When God makes a promise, it is a clear anchor for our souls. We can attach ourselves to that. We can use it to buoy us, to secure us, to give us a sure and steady footing in this life. It's one of the benefits of Christians having the word of God. That though the world be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, we have a sure and steady anchor of the soul. The promises of God, they are always yes. And they're yes in Christ. And so we see that God is a reassuring God. And we see that God is a trustworthy God. And we talked about the idea that we as man are not that. And even as parents who, who are teaching and emulating God to our children, we're a, a picture of that. We know that we've got room to grow. May God create a people that are emulating him in our trustworthiness and in our desire to reassure those whom we walk with. I want you to notice what's happening, though, in these verses that we've read this morning, verses 13 to 20. I want you to see the shift of emphasis. We looked last week that the good works that we produce as Christians, that they do not secure a future salvation, but they do give us a hope, an assurance of that future hope, that we truly are in Christ. Perhaps you left last week feeling a burden to accomplish something. Well, the end of Hebrews did not end, did not come last week, nor does it come today, but the argument continues to move on and the emphasis is not on what you can accomplish this morning, but on what God has promised to accomplish in and of himself. The character of God. If he says it, he will do it. And in his gentleness and in his kindness, he will condescend and reassure us in a way that we don't deserve and in a way that's unnecessary. And yet he does it in his kindness. And so we looked at the character of the promiser. Let's look at the content of the promise, particularly, again, the promise that God has made to Abraham. What did God promise him there in Genesis chapter 12? He promised him that he would bring him to a new land. Inherent is that in that promise, in that statement of bringing him to a new land that God would show him is that he would be sustained in that land. And not just would Abraham be sustained, but he says, of you, Abram, I'll make a great nation. And he goes on to talk about the blessing and the, and the cursing. But there's gonna be a land that Abram 
is going to inherit, that he's going to obtain, and he's going to also have a great name uh, for a great people. This was the content of the promise. But what's interesting about Abram in this particular time in his life? He's going to have a land that is going to be used and will bless his family, and yet Abram has no children. The content of God's promise requires that if this is going to come true, if he's going to have this land that will be inhabited by Abram's descendants, he's got to have descendants. At this point in time, he has none. This is something that Abraham wanted, something that Sarah wanted, and yet God had not yet given it to them. Quickly moving on, we know that God's not a liar. He assures his children of his promises, but I want you to notice the content and the character surrounding this promise, but also notice the circumstances. Not only did Abram at the time of this promise not have any children, but there was a great deal of time that went on after Abram had received this promise that he did not see any forward movement on it. In Genesis chapter 12, what do we see? This promise that God makes that implies that Abram will have descendants. And yet nine chapters in the book of Genesis go by. What does that come out to in years? 25 years go by and nothing has happened. No children have been born to Abram through his wife, Sarah. 25 years. These are the circumstances surrounding the promise that Abraham had been given by God. Furthermore, how old was Abram or yeah, Abram or Abraham when God made this promise to him? 75 years old. What's that in dog years, right? Like, is this like some sort of a, he was 75 years old. His wife, not that much younger. At that point in time, the clock was ticking. Time was passing by. The ship really had already sailed, and yet God made this promise. Abraham and Sarah thinking every minute would count, every second would count, and yet God, 24, 24 and a quarter, 24 and a half, 24 and three quarter, allowed those many years to go by. And then chapter 21 comes. 25 years later, what does the scripture say? The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. I love this verse. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said he would. And the Lord allowed to happen. He accomplished in Sarah as he had promised he would allow. And Sarah conceived a son, Isaac. What do we see here? 
in this story that the preacher of Hebrews offers for us. We see the, the character of God, that he is the kind of God that reassures his children of his promises. He's the kind of God that does not lie. He's not like man. What do we see of the promise? It was seemingly impossible. It was a wonderful and glorious promise. And yet, much time went by before God actually fulfilled that promise. But we see in chapter 6 that Abraham did what? He patiently waited and thereby obtained the promise. What do the promises of God require of us? Patience. The promises of God require patience. We could see that from the life of Abraham. And the preacher wants us to consider his life and to consider our own patience, our own level of faith that we would have in the promise of God. And that as we consider that promise, we would also exercise patience. When you consider God's gifts, you can break that, the, 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 these gifts into two categories, a present reality or a promised hope. There's no patience that's needed in that present reality. Why? Because it's something that you already have. You don't need any hope. You don't need any patience. You don't need to wait. It's something that you already enjoy. And many of us right now can write out a quick list and a long one at that of all the ways that God has promised us something and fulfilled it. And it's a present reality right now. But for those gifts from God that have not yet been realized, the ones that are promised hopes, they require patience. That's what Abraham exercised. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. We see in his life, we see in this story, God interacting with Abraham. We see trustworthiness. We see reassurance. We see bold promises. We see patient faith. And we see fulfillment. What's the purpose of Abraham's example? Why is it listed here? Fun fact, the writer of Hebrews loves the, author, loves, uh, the patriarch Abraham. This is the, he, he's mentioned more in this book, in the New Testament that is, uh, than, than all the other books except for two. He loves Abraham. But why has he brought him up now? What, what is he arguing for? He's arguing, he's hoping that we would come to the same conclusion that Abraham did, that the promises of God are worth waiting for that they're worth trusting and that they are indeed an anchor for the soul. And so as we compare God's promise to Abraham with God's promise to the church, let's do that as we consider the character of the one who's promising to the church, the content of what has been promised to the church and the circumstances surrounding this promise that God has made to the church. So first, let's again look at the character of the promise or character of the promiser. The reality is it's no different it's the same one. The same God that made the promise to Abraham is the same God that has made the promise to us. We, re, we are referred to Christians 
in this passage as heirs of the promise. Ones, those who will inherit what God has promised to them. And what has uh, God promised to them? We'll see in just a moment. But we know that we will get what he has promised. Why? Because he is trustworthy. Not only did he say a promise to Abram and then come around with an oath, but he's done the same thing to us. He has made a statement of a, of a promise. He's indicated his intentions, and he has backed that up for us as well with an oath. In chapter 6, verse 17 and following, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, to the Christians, what did he want to show them? The, the unchangeable character of his purpose Because he wanted to be convincing, because he wanted to be encouraging, he guaranteed his promise with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God has made two promises to us. Really the same promise. He's done it in a promise and he's done it in an oath. These are the two things. And of these two things, we consider that God cannot lie. He is trustworthy. And just as he did with Abram, he's reminded us throughout history. He's even sent his son as a fulfillment and a declarer of the gospel. And he's made that oath by his own name. He's reassuring us this morning, church. Really, this entire letter, this entire book, this sermon, all of Hebrews is intended to be one of reassurance for the people of God, for the heirs of the promise. God is trustworthy. I pray that you're encouraged as you consider, as we walk through the book of Hebrews. The same trustworthy and reassuring God that spoke to Abraham, he's speaking to us. But what has he promised us? What has he promised? What oath has he made to you? What is the content of the promise? Let's continue moving on. What does the scripture say? In verse 19, that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here the author, the, the preacher is quoting from Psalm 110. We've referenced this before. Particularly look with me at verses two, three, and four. Maybe it'll be on the screen for you. Here it is. Psalm 110, verse 2 says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. By the way, that's the same scepter of uprightness. That's the scepter of Christ's kingdom that we see in chapter 1. And what of that one that's sent forth with the mighty scepter? He will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Where will they have gotten these holy garments? Well, verse four declares for us, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Speaking of the Lord's Messiah, speaking of Jesus Christ, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
What are the two unchangeable things in which God has promised to us and made an oath to us? Of what can we consider that God will not lie? That Jesus, the Christ, is of the order of Melchizedek and attached to that, flowing out of that, which he'll unpack in chapter seven, he has been declared by God as an, as, as an eternal high priest. So that Jesus is a great high, the great high priest and that he will be the high priest, the great high priest for all of eternity. These are the promises that God has made to us. This is the oath that he has made to us, that he has sworn by his name. Do you see that in verse four? The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The author, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there in Psalm 110, is hearkening back to Genesis 22 when God swore by his own name. Here he's swearing again, now not to Abraham, but to the descendants of Abraham, the church of Christ. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, and he is an eternal great high priest in that order. What does that mean for us? He's eternal. His work is unending. It's ever more effective. And that's a great encouragement. That's a great anchor for our souls, for the souls of those who are heirs of God's promise. He gives it to us freely to encourage us, to reassure us. One commentator gave this. Under the old covenant, only the high priest could go behind the curtain, separating the outer part of the holy place from the inner place. And then only once a year on the day of atonement, the day of Yom Kippur, this barrier keeping the broader people of God from entering into the presence of God, however, has been torn away in the new covenant. We all now may enter by following Jesus. This is a promise. This is an anchor for our soul. This is what God has sworn to accomplish. I love verse 18. Considering this promise that's been made, it says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I wanna just take a moment to unpack the gospel. Why in the world would anybody have fled to God for refuge when it is God's wrath that is upon those who have sinned against him. It's counterintelligent, isn't it? It's counterintuitive in a sense that the one that we've sinned against, the one whose wrath burns against our sinfulness, that we would run to him. And as I prayed at the beginning of our time together, that's only a consideration. That idea that we should run from God is only considering the justice of God and the promise of God that he will not overlook sin. And you say, yes, I understand that. And so why would we flee to God? Why would we run to God for refuge if he is the one that's on the offensive? It's because he has also been the one who has provided a sacrifice for us. He has provided atonement for those who would humble themselves and in that humility that he has given to them, reach out in faith and receive the righteousness of Christ displayed on the cross and at Jesus' resurrection. 
So we don't run from God, we run to God. Why? Because he promised that he would provide a refuge for us. He promised that he would provide a great high priest who would give us the white robes of Psalm 110. We have this as hope, as part of the promise. Jesus Christ has mediated on our behalf as high priest. He has covered our sins, and now we can have peace with God. We don't need to run away from God. We run to him because we believe this promise that he's made. It's the promise that the church believes. It's why we're here today. It's why we're not scattered but gathered this morning and gathered around his promises to remind ourselves of these promises because God is good And he promised that he would not crush us. He would not destroy us. But that if we come to him in the name of Jesus, he would receive us. And that we could come into the very throne room of God, passing through the curtain, following that captain, that great high priest who has already gone on before, chasing along the chain that's attached to the anchor for our souls. That anchor that right now resides at the right hand of the Father promise that we can be redeemed, the promise that we will be justified, a promise that we are leaning into and believing this morning, a promise that we will be sanctified in the present by the very power of the resurrected Christ. We're believing that this morning, aren't we? But what of the future? This promise that we will not just have power over sin in the present, freedom from the penalty of sin over the past, but in the future that we will be glorified, delivered from this body of death, given a new body. Furthermore, we all have a desire in our heart to see this world as it should be. A desire to experience the shalom, the peace of God that we sense is here in part and yet still broken and not fully tasted of and experienced. It's where we come to the circumstances that surround the promise. Some of it's already been fulfilled. Some of it for us has already been realized through Christ and yet there's still a not yet. We read in Isaiah chapter 11 verses one and two. And then skipping down to nine on the screen for you this morning. The promise was made long ago. There shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The promise that God made to Abraham that you'll always have someone from your line reigning on the throne. A descendant of you, David, will always reign David's father was Jesse, and so there's a shoot, there's a a branch that's coming out of the dead stump, the one that's been cut down and burned. There's a a branch that's coming out of it, and that branch is promised to bear fruit. This branch is not a thing, but it's a person. And of this person, it says in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Why? Why will he need these things? Why have these things been made manifest or will be made manifest in his life? Because he'll need them as a ruler. 
on the throne of David. He'll need them. What will he accomplish, this one who's to rule, this one who's coming from the the seed of David, from the stump of Jesse? What will be the result? Well, verse 9, speaking of his kingdom, both of man and beast there that are under his reign, what will be true of that kingdom? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the, uh, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We read that text and there's a longing in our hearts. There's a yearning that erupts as we consider no more hurt, no more destruction in all his holy mountain. That's something that we don't see just yet. It's a promise that's been made and yet we've not seen it manifest. Not entirely, at least. It says in the future sense, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How exhaustive does the waters cover the sea? Exhaustively. It completely covers it. And as an illustration, the the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the gospel of God, the, the reign of Messiah will cover the world. One day in the future, as much as the Atlantic Ocean covers the pathway that you would use to walk to England. Completely covers it. We've seen so many parts of what God has promised us in the gospel fulfilled. And yet there are parts of it that have not yet been fulfilled. At this point in time, the first century, the first audience that's reading this book, the original audience, what were the circumstances surrounding them as they had been of those there in chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, who had been enlightened, who had tasted the heavenly gift, who'd shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come. They'd got a taste of what was to come. They'd gotten a taste of what we read there in Isaiah 11. And yet some of them Though they had come to faith, though some of them had been walking with the church, now many of them were leaving. In the book of Acts, we read chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I won't read all of those verses, but actually just 1 and 7. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, when basically the church was growing, multiplying, getting bigger, adding members every day, it says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were not being or being were being neglected in the daily distribution. What I want you to see in verse one is that the church is growing and expanding. People were repenting of their sin, looking to Jesus, and believing that He was the Lamb of God that would take away their sin. Verse seven even says, not just of regular ordinary disciples like you and me, but priests. From the faith, from the Jewish religion, we're converting from Judaism to Christianity. It says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied, just six verses later, 
it multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's how much power, that's how much change, that's how much a taste of the power of the age to come was being tasted in that day. And yet, then we have the content, we have the, the impetus behind this book, the, the book of Hebrews. We see in chapter 6 of Acts that many were coming to faith in Christ and now we understand through the whole book of Hebrews that many were walking away. What was causing them to walk away? What was causing them to lose faith? What was causing them to be discouraged? What was causing them to consider now the things that they had tasted and now determine that this isn't worth staying around any longer for? Maybe some of them had experienced rough seas. We had imagined what they had experienced in time past, in the past few weeks. Some of them in prison, losing their livelihoods, having their reputation tarnished, losing their lives. And because of these rough seas, they turned around and they began to head back home to their previous method of worship. I imagine the very, some of the same priests that had become obedient to the faith because they'd seen in Christ not a shadow but a fulfillment of all the things that they had been practicing there in the temple. And yet now, allegedly, we can assume that many of them had turned back. They faced pressure and they began to doubt the goodness of God. They began to doubt the promises of God. They began to doubt the character of God. They began to to doubt the timeline of God. How could it have been this long? He should have returned by now. How could I experience this much pain and this much loss if you really were going to fulfill Isaiah 11? We thought you were going to fulfill Isaiah 11. And now I guess I'll leave the, the cross, the empty tomb, and the church, and I'll return to the sacrifice table, to the temple, and to rituals. All that served as a shadow for Christ. All that were promises and pictures of what God had swore in an oath. Similarly, we face pressure as well. We face pressure to weigh anchor and take off for calmer waters, calmer seas where we won't face the same sort of danger or doubt that's associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've begun to consider in our own lives, while we may not be facing exactly the the same degree of persecution that the first century Christians that were in the audience there, as Hebrews was being read for the first time, we are still knowing to be, to be entering into rougher waters. Talked to a believer this week who said, my faith is wavering. How could the promise of his coming be this long? He said he would return. And I believed it. And now I'm struggling to believe that. Maybe it's not doubt, though. Maybe it's temptation of other sorts. Maybe it's the belief that the things in the here and now are better than the there and then. The things that we can experience in this life, the safety and the joys of this life, light and momentary as they are, 
seem to be heavier than the weight of eternity and glory with God and the fulfillment of what Isaiah 11 promises. No hurt in all of his temple and all his holy mountain. Maybe for some of us, these things have become more appealing, the light and momentary, more appealing than that which is eternal. Maybe you, like that brother I mentioned earlier, Maybe you have begun to doubt the return of Christ that the writer of Hebrews declares for us in chapter 9. And just as is appointed for man once to die, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're struggling in that waiting. Which, by the way, remember, that's why we gather, to encourage each other, to allow each other to have a firmer grip as a result of our time together around the word of God, singing the songs of God, so that we can continue to wait eagerly for his return. For us, like Abraham, the waiting can be long and the days can be dark. But what's the point of this promise? What's the point of these verses that we've looked at this morning? That though the day is dark, Though the waiting is long, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has already gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And what has he done? He's become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews invites us to a security, to an anchor something that attaches us to eternal realities that are not of this world, that are in the inner sanctuary beyond the curtain. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, we've got a God who tells the truth. We've got a God who makes oaths. And why does he do that? To encourage us in these dark days. To serve as an anchor when the water gets rough. And we're tempted to be led astray this way or that way and to not wait eagerly where he's called us to wait. I was reminded by my sweet wife of the story behind a great Christmas song. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow had experienced the death of a child, he and his wife. Not long after that, Longfellow himself had lost his wife. As he was taking a, a nap, his wife was piddling with some things and there in the wintertime, in the afternoon, early, uh, early evening, using a candle, her dress caught on fire. He attempted to put her out as she began to scream. He was awakened from his nap. He attempted to put her out with a rug and changed tactics using his own body and his own clothing to pat out the, and suffocate the fire. He was unsuccessful. His wife died the next day. He was a man acquainted with sorrow unable to attend his wife's funeral because of the burns that he sustained as he tried to rescue her. A few years, just two years after the loss of his wife, the nation, this nation, was in upheaval. It was the summer of 1863. And on a hot July day, the United States, divided as they were, lost 50,000-some Sons and fathers. In fact, not long after that, 
Longfellow's own son was badly wounded. He was told in a letter that he had been received a, a gunshot wound to his head. And so he gathers the family up from Massachusetts and they make the hike on the, well, to take the train down to visit his family, to visit his son. And there finds out that though it's not a wound to the head, it is a, a dangerous, dangerous wound. And as he's spending time there with his son, destruction and disease and death all around him, he pens the words to this poem, later turned to a song. He says, I hear the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. What irony. As he considers his own life, can a Christmas card and a Christmas tune really lift him from this reality that he faces? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of, un of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstone of, all, of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, Goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, good will to men. This dear brother, as he saw the pain and destruction that is a result of the sin that both he and his family and the world together had committed, still had an anchor for the soul. In the face of pain and loss, that none of us can even imagine or fathom. His anchor held sure and steady. And that's the point of this text for us today. That though we look in the face of destruction and death and disparity, we come away saying, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, there will be peace on earth, and there is even now goodwill toward men. What's the main idea this morning? Keep waiting patiently. Church, don't give up. Keep waiting patiently. Why? Because God will accomplish all that he has promised in Christ. He will. It's not a Christmas song, but it, I like to quote hymns. And even though I just quoted one, I'm going to quote this one, too, at the risk of frustrating you. It's got to be quoted on the day that we read about the anchor for the soul. 
It's helpful. It's rhetorical. It asks the question, will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? Will your anchor hold in the straits of fear when the breakers roar and the reef is near? While the surges rage and the wild winds blow, shall the angry waves then your bark overflow? Will your anchor hold in the floods of death when the water's cold chill at your, uh, your latest breath, on the rising tide you can never fail when your anchor holds within the veil. Will your eyes behold through the morning light the city of gold and the harbor bright? Will, your anchor safe, well, will you anchor safe by the heavenly shore when life's storms are past forevermore? Here's the refrain that I've held to the end. It's the refrain of this church. It's the refrain of those who are heirs of the promise of God declared by the preacher here in chapter six. Church, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. There's not a promise that's been made to us that we declared at the beginning of this service that will not come true. The promises of God are yes, and they are amen, and they are fulfilled in the person of Christ. He is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Church, hold on to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now celebrating this anchor that you have given to us, an anchor for the soul, Father, there are so many things in this life that would present themselves as sure and steady. And yet there's only one thing that doesn't change. Aside from change itself, it is Christ alone. He is the one who never changes. Father, as we consider the promise that you have made and fulfilled in Christ, we pray that because he, the anchor, holds that we, his children, would hold firmly to that anchor. Father, as we see Christ high and lifted up, better than angels, better than the high priests, better than our own righteousness by far, we pray that you'd help us to be strengthened in our resolve to continue to hold to him. Father, not to drift on to this or to that, Father, not to weigh anchor and go to some other harbor. Maybe hold fast to Christ. He's sure and he is steady. Father, may our doctrine be pure and faithful until you return. May we continue to love your appearing and be looking for it. Father, the world is broken. We feel it. And yet we know that your promises are sure in the face of pain, in the face of darkness. In the face of 2,000 years of waiting, we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.